Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer. And today on the podcast, we're talking with the first Native American woman elected to Congress, Congresswoman Deb Holland from New Mexico. She's uh, in the middle of a whole bunch of different things. She's, we're talking about the Green New Deal. We're talking about Medicare for All. And we're talking about Mueller and why she's not quite there yet on impeachment. And we ask her what she thinks about how Senator Elizabeth Warren handled her Native American heritage story. Next on It's All Political, Congresswoman Deb Holland. Congresswoman Deb Holland, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome to the city of St. Francis, San Francisco. Thank you. So let's let's jump right into it. We got so much news happening. You're in town here as part of uh, Emerge America. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, um, a conference here. That's for uh, female candidates. They try to encourage female candidates to run across the country. Yes, it's a Democratic Women's Political Leadership Training Program. And you're you're kind of the star pupil. Uh, from your uh, well, I I'm a I'm an Emerge graduate, Emerge New Mexico from 2007. And, um, you know, I just stayed involved. I, I do a training every year in, in Albuquerque mm-hmm. uh, about campaigning in Indian country. And so I just I, I feel I feel indebted to the program. So yeah. I try to help wherever I can. Well, let's jump into some of the news of the day. I wanted to get your take on it. First of all, obviously, what uh, what's happening with uh, Robert Mueller, the special counsel, mm-hmm. speaking for the first time since he got the gig the other day, he's. Mueller said, if we had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. Do you think Democrats should begin impeachment proceedings against President Trump? So there's no question that the White House is just in a massive cover-up of, of all of these things. And it's interesting how the president can't remember from one minute to the next what he's already said. So he contradicts himself, it seems like. Um, you know, when he's talking about these things. And just in reading uh, the Mueller report, I haven't gotten through the entire report yet, but I am I am trudging my way through with everything else that I'm doing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty evident that, yes, I think Robert Mueller is correct. We, um, we, there are so many ways we can hold the president accountable and this administration accountable, and I believe that our leadership is working on that. We have... Uh, the chair people of the committees who were really directly involved with with, you know, the subpoenas and the hearings and all of those things. So um, I am not against impeachment. I am not against starting the impeachment hearings. However, um, with respect to timing, I'm not sure where exactly we are on that. So not right now. You're you're sounds like you're not, not I, quite I think there there's, yet. I think there's still a lot of information that needs to be uh, assessed and so we'll see. We'll what, see. What do you what think happens? it needs to be assessed for you and for other Democrats? Because there's really only what about three dozen Democrats who are full on for impeachment mm-hmm, out of the, mm-hmm. uh, the two hundred what forty you have now. Right. Uh, so what 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 do you need to see at this point? Right. So look, some of the folks that the the House has has wanted to subpoena haven't shown up. Right. right? Um, it's hard to ask questions when the chair is empty. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I really, truly believe that there are a lot of questions that still need to be answered. I don't know exactly what those committee members 
uh, would ask, you know, Don McGahn or William Barr if he if he came and sat in front of them. So um, at this point, too, whether they whether they bring Robert Mueller Mueller in for a hearing, uh, that remains to be seen as well. So I just I would I'm interested to see whenever the whenever there is a hearing that's happened. Uh, I have watched it on the replay when I'm, you know, at nighttime when I'm off of work. I I think there is still some information we need to get. And And, um, you're a former state party chair in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. What would the political – Pelosi, as she's said on this podcast, as she says repeatedly – that she's there's a concern about the political fallout. There's obviously not the votes in the Senate, so this would be – this would be a trial, or this would this would be a um, the, the, he may be impeached in the House, but it's you know Republicans as long as they have control of the Senate, it's not going to happen. <laughs> if if that would be the scenario, how would that play out in New Mexico? What does that do? Are voters concerned about this? Do they do you feel like yes, voters wanting a, do voter, they want impeachment? Voters are absolutely concerned. We've got you know we've gotten a lot of calls about impeachment. Um, there's the the uh, impeach now the Tim. Is it Tom Steyer? Tom Steyer, folks. Uh, they, you know, San Francisco. I was on a, um, you know, Facebook post that that had my picture and call her now. <laughs> Tell her we want to impeach. Did you get some calls? Out uh, of that? I we, I did. We got some calls. But yes, New Mexico is very, very much interested. New Mexico, um, we have worked extremely hard to do what's right for, for not only our state but all of America. So, um, yes, they're interested. We, I, I'm just, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna rush on it. Mm -hmm. I want to, I want to give the chair, the chair people, um, the members of Congress on those committees an opportunity to ask their questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that will, they will elicit a lot more information and insight into what actually transpired. And, and uh, I think, we we just like we have to be pretty methodical yeah. about a situation like that. So um, and look, every Democrat needs to be on board if that's the case. Uh, we can't be divided. We need to move together as as in, in you know we have to be unified on that front. So um, I think we have a little bit of a ways to go. Mueller also said, uh, you know, the, probably one of the most important things I think that came out of the ten minutes that Mueller spoke this week, was he said, I will close by reiterating the central allegation of our indictments, that there were multiple systematic efforts to interfere in our election. And that allegation deserves the attention of every American. Um, You sit on the Armed Services Committee in the House. Mm -hmm. And uh, so do you believe from what you know that we are ready to defend ourselves against more cyber attacks. Um, so I, yes, I'm on the House Armed Services Committee. Quite frankly, that's that's not a topic that comes up in my committee that much because, uh, you know, there are our main purpose for that committee is to pass the National Defense Authorization Act out of our committee. So there are like it's huge, right? It's you know it's a gigantic yeah. um, endeavor, and so. Um, but I do feel that, um, you know, the Intelligence Committee and, and, and the Oversight Committee, those are committees who, who probably deal with that issue a lot more. But look, we all have to be on high alert. 
we, the Russian government interfered with our election. There's nothing that says they're not going to do it again. And we have to take this extremely seriously. Now, we have someone in charge who is who has actually uh, defended Vladimir Putin in, you know, in a press conference. He's agreed with him. He's exonerated him essentially from uh, from his interference in our elections. And I think that's just uh, it's frightening and it's pathetic that our president has defended the the president of Russia who who essentially you know, I mean, it's 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 just I can't even. It's, I'm speechless over it, <laughs> right? So, uh, so yes, I, we all need to worry about this issue. And I mean, we have an excellent Secretary of State in New Mexico. She will guard our elections with you know to the best of her ability. And I I feel like I feel confident in New Mexico. That doesn't stop you know the the. All of the barrage of, of social media and all of those things that essentially play on people's emotions and play on people's, um, you know, ideas about the elections. And, and I'm sure that it's, it's just going to happen again. We just need to be on high alert and we, mm-hmm. each, we each need to be strong in our own ways. I want to get a, a, your take on a, um, an issue that's, that you've been working on at the federal level, but here in California we, we were um, dealing with as well. And just the other day, the California Assembly passed a bill that would um, tighten the regulations around gig work. You know, people who drive for Lyft or Uber or, you know, maybe they have uh, their independent, uh, you know, manicurist or something. Um, and it would the, this this law that passed the assembly, this bill that passed the assembly would force independent contractors to become employees. And to be a true independent contractor, this, this uh, legislation says, a worker must be free from a company's control doing work not central to the company's business and have an independent business in that trade. And, you know, companies often classify these workers as, uh, as independent contractors to, to get out of laws governing minimum wage and overtime, workman's comp, workers' comp, disability, and other benefits. Um, is it, that sounds similar to what you're working on in the House? And, and why should we be concerned about something like this? Well... For starters, the you know it's like the hot, the top five executives in Uber or Lyft. I can't remember which one. You know they make one hundred forty three million dollars, while the drivers for those companies make anywhere from eight to ten dollars an hour. And then on top of that, they have to pay those uh, Social Security and, and Medicare taxes. It's an easy out for these companies. Uber, when they went public, $91 billion. They didn't get there by themselves. Those executives weren't out there dri- driving the streets of, of Boston or D.C. or, you know, Japan or wherever else they're driving. It's the, it's the workers who, who gave them that ability. I am so just distraught over the fact that we have quit valuing the hard work that people do in this country, and it's time that the big corporations pay up. It's 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 unfathomable that you know somebody sitting up in a big high rise 
uh, is just devising ways to cheat workers out of, uh, of, you know, pay that they need to make a living off of. Like these are folks who are raising kids and sending kids to college and trying to buy groceries and keeping a roof over their heads. It's it's not fair and it, it needs to change. So, yes. Some estimates say that if these laws go into place, they could add 30 percent onto the onto the cost of labor and of course we know who's going to be paying that the folks who are who are riding uh, Ubers and Lyfts and such what what do you say to to consumers when they say like what well, jeez my Uber ride wasn't as cheap as it used to be it's interesting that that's the first thing they'll do is they'll pass the cost on to consumers. The big executives who are making you know uh, millions of dollars a year aren't going to say, "Oh, I'm going to take a cut and pay so that my so that my workers have a chance at success." It's terrible, and uh, I hope that I mean I just wish people would grow consciences. Mm. They don't have a conscience. They um, so uh, yes, it's similar to, to the bill I'm trying to pass. It's you know the way they classify workers, and um, they they should be paying those employment taxes. Let's uh, talk about some more uh, domestic uh, some more domestic issues as we speak here uh, in San Francisco this day. Uh, Fourteen Democratic uh, presidential candidates are coming to San Francisco for the California Democratic Party convention, and to you know scoop up a bunch of money at private fundraisers. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. And um, one of the issues that they're differing on is Medicare for all. Some are for it. Some think it, think it's a nice aspirational goal, but politically unrealistic to think it could happen. Uh, some are saying instead we should uh, take an intermediary step and, and let people buy into Medicare. Where are you in all this? Well, I campaigned on Medicare for all. I think every single person in this country should be able to go see a doctor when they're sick. Um, I think there's a way for Medicare for all for every single uh, person who needs health care. Medical care is so expensive in our country. People are taking half of their insulin because they can't afford to take full doses of insulin. People are not going to the doctor when they're sick. They're trying home remedies. They're, you know, they're doing uh, whatever they can to cut those costs. And uh, we need Medicare for all. We, everybody needs to have health care. In countries around the world where essentially a Medicare for all model is, is used, uh, they have better outcomes and health care costs are lower. Uh, and that's what we need to do here in this country. You know, I I'm, I'm thinking back to the early 90s. I spent a year abroad in Swansea, Wales, and even as a foreign student in that country, when you're sick, you just go to the doctor and they yeah, see you. Yeah, yeah. They don't ask, you know, uh, for your insurance card. They don't ask you, you know, you don't have to make a copay. The doctor will see you when you're sick. Um, that needs to happen in our country. You know, before the Affordable Care Act in New Mexico, our emergency rooms were were filled to the brim because that was the only way people would be able to see a doctor if they didn't have insurance. Mm -hmm. I'm deathly afraid that, you know, cutting back uh, like the Republicans are always trying to do, right, toy with uh, pre-existing conditions and repeal the Affordable Care Act and whatever else they're doing. Uh, it's just going to move us back to it's going to move us backwards and and we need to move forward. What, what do you do about private insurance companies? Do they how do they go away? Because it's, you know, 80, 75, 80 percent of people get their insurance through private insurance companies. Do those things 
have to these go away right away, or how are they phased out? I mean, I imagine there's still a lot of folks in this country who can afford to have insurance, right? Uh, there's a lot who can't. Mm-hmm. So um, I I haven't given that a, a huge amount of thought, but um, I think it's shameful that for so long insurance companies have looked for ways to kick people off of their insurance instead of bring them on. Mm-hmm. And the Affordable Care Act was a lifesaver to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. By saying you can't kick people off for you know this reason or that reason, uh, I'd also like to say that um, uh, prior to winning my seat, I applied. You know, I had to get my health insurance on the exchange, and I'm happy that now I have insurance. I pay. I pay into insurance out of every single paycheck I get, and my daughter thankfully is able to be on my insurance. So at least for another year, she just turned 25. Hmm. So. Um, we need to support the Affordable Care Act until we have Medicare for all. Okay. Another uh, big division among the Democratic presidential candidates is um, is over the Green New Deal. Now, you're, you're a big supporter of the Green New Deal. I am. Yes. But some of the candidates, like your your uh, the former governor of your neighboring state of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, said it is full of unrealistic goals. Um, the, for people who are still unfamiliar with it, the Green New Deal is a resolution. It's it's a non-binding resolution to uh, its goal is to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions within a decade. When people hear about this, because right now it's, you know, it is sort of a, it's a non-binding resolution. What do you want them to think about? What, how would this be implemented? How do you think of this? Do you think of it as a concept? Do you think of it as a construct, as an aspirational goal? Where, where are you on this? Well, I think right now the document itself is very aspirational. And those of us who really believe that we need to uh, essentially, uh, I mean, the Green New Deal, it's like, you know, it's a revolutionary uh, idea about how we're going to save our planet. And I don't think, I don't think saving our planet is unrealistic. <laughs> I think, you know, we have to do something drastic because we've neglected this issue for entirely too long. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I said in a speech one time that climate change started when the Europeans came over to this country and started slaughtering buffalo. When they started killing buffalo a thousand a day, um, the, so I back up one of my professors one time told us that if you if you were in space back at the height of the buffalo migrations that you'd be able to see them from space because mm-hmm. there were so many. But it changed the weather patterns all the way in California because the sun, you know those massive that mass of of you know black those big masses of black on the face of the earth were not absorbing. Uh, the sun any longer. So, you know, we've wreaked havoc on this, on our planet for so long because people didn't understand the value of conservation and until it was really, like, so late. Mm. And so we have a lot of catching up to do, right? I mean, you, you can chop down a 500-year-old tree much faster than it took to grow that tree, mm. right? So, so we've been able to wreak havoc on the planet far faster than than anything has been able to regenerate itself. So, 
yes, it's expensive. Yes, we need to do something about it. Yes, we should all think be thinking about how we can conserve and how we can move forward with renewable energy or whatever it is that we decide to, you know, invest in or or fight for. And I just, I think it, it's going to take some drastic measures. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the way, you know... I know there are a lot of folks on the other side of the aisle who are who are mocking the Green New Deal and yes, who aren't taking it seriously. Yeah. And I think that's pathetic. I think they need to think. I mean, it's their lives, too. It's the lives of their grandchildren also. Uh, you know, if you uh, they don't think about the people in Alaska whose villages will be underwater in less than 10 years. And I think it's a really selfish way to go about things when we're not thinking of everybody, because it's the folks with the least who will be affected the most. So uh, you, as we mentioned in our intro, are one of the first Native American women to be elected to the House. Uh, you're Laguna Pueblo. Yes. Trent, and uh, your fellow Democrat, Sharice uh, Davids, was a member, is a member of the Ho-Chunk Nation from Kansas. Mm-hmm. You both came in at the same time in the first. Yes, yeah, she's actually the Ho-Chunk Nation. Right, the Ho-Chunk's from Wisconsin. Sorry. Yeah. But yes, she's from Kansas. From Kansas yes, yeah. yes, sorry. Um, now, you were, you've done a lot of political organizing in your time. You were, the, as we said earlier, the state party chair in New Mexico. And you've organized the Native Americans for President Obama's 2012 campaign. Mm-hmm. I was curious, when it came time to getting yourself elected, what was the biggest challenge for you as a Native American woman? Well, I think it, uh, one of the big challenges for any woman or any mm-hmm. candidate, for that matter, but uh, is raising the money you need to raise, right? Why is that? It's, I mean, when I started when I started my campaign, there were a lot of people who said, she can't raise the money, she's never going to be able to win, right? So I have to say, okay, that's a challenge, and I'm just going to, you know, <laughs> to live up to that challenge. Yeah. So I ended up raising the money I needed to win, and, and I obviously won, but it's, um, you know, it's, it's, diffi- it's a difficult thing, raising money. And for a congressional campaign, you know, it's millions of dollars. Regardless of where you are, you're not going to get away with raising less than, you know, one or two million dollars. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. n- new, it, you know, my district is, is cheap compared to a lot of them. Right, right. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's raising money is, is a challenge, but... It's it's you know the way I look at it is um, it, we have a country to save, and so any amount of sacrifice that any of us can do to save this country, uh, we should just go for it. Did you face any racism, subtle or overt, during your candidacy? I did. Yeah, like what? I Tell did. I had a um, my Republican opponent actually uh, questioned my heritage. She said I I I shouldn't claim my that I wasn't native because I didn't live there. Because you didn't live I didn't on the live, reservation? Yeah, on my Pueblo. But you, you, you spent time with your grandparents there, correct? Uh, well, the fact is that I'm an enrolled member of the Laguna Pueblo, and even sitting here in downtown San Francisco, I am still a member of the Laguna Pueblo. Where regardless of where I am in the world, I carry my culture and my, my traditions and my spirituality with me. Speaking of, of people questioning uh, people's Native American uh, heritage, uh, I wanted to ask you what you thought of all the stuff around Senator Elizabeth Warren. Mm-hmm. 
who is running for president, as mm -hmm. is everyone else, um, when she took a DNA test to back up her claim that she was part Cherokee and part Delaware Indian, I believe, mm -hmm. I, I wanted to hear from you as someone who is Native American. Mm -hmm. Are you comfortable with her and the way she did that and, and, and how she handled that situation? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, I think it, it was... It was. I read in a, an article uh, about her that people were like trying to steal her water glasses and spoons and you know silverware and things like that, so they could test her DNA, oh, uh, which I think is just <laughs> despicable. And um, it it was. I felt like she was under pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, look, I, I'm not going to second guess any any person's. Um, you know, the, I'm not going to second guess the way they go about anything. Um, I think she wanted to uh, at least uh, put to rest, you know, a question that had been asked of her many times. And um, and secondly, I would never question someone's identity. Mm -hmm. However, anyone chooses to identify themselves, I I accept that, and I and I am. I mean, I'm I'm just not going to question anyone's identity. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that she has been a fighter for the American people. I think that she's extremely smart and strong and, and is unafraid. And, and so uh, to me, that, that means a tremendous amount. She's an ally for, for Native, for tribes and Indian people across the country. And, and I think um, in this time with a president who is clearly racist against Indians, that um, it's important to have all the allies we can have. All right. Since we are talking 2020, do you have a favorite yet? I don't. I don't have a favorite. I'm going to, I mean, I'm just going to wait. No, there's, <laughs> you know, I just found out today that a, a Navajo man uh, from, I think he's from New Mexico. Uh, Navajo man is entering the race too. He's running for president. So... I, I'm just going to wait a while. Um, I'll probably watch some of the video of the candidates here at the California yeah. convention because I'm sure they'll all be, you, what you know. What are you looking for? What do you, give me your, your, your top three so, criteria for, for the next Democratic nominee. Sure. Well, of course, somebody who can beat President Trump. Yes. We, that's like number one, right? Uh, we need somebody who, who can win our White House back. Um, Second, I mean, look, I've I've worked on a lot of campaigns. I've helped a lot of candidates. I've run a few campaigns myself. I think we will, you know, we'll see whoever resonates with the majority of Americans, whoever can identify with the majority of Americans, whoever inspires the majority of the of the Americans. Um, that will be the person who essentially wins, I believe. And and it might be an easy choice for people. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have to see. And and I know there's kind of a frantic, um, you know, everyone help me get to the debate, right? Because yes. they're having criteria for getting to the debate. So, uh, I mean, I hope as many people, as, po as many candidates as possible make it to the debates because I think everyone's voice is important right now. All right. Congresswoman Deb Holland, thanks for being on It's All thank Political. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening. I'd like to thank Congresswoman Deb Holland for coming to San Francisco today for the podcast. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you're a historic candidate or just another white guy, 
It's All Political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.